Welcome to the Left Right Forward Show, business and political solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Welcome back. This is Left Right Forward, and I am Delano Lewis. I'm excited today because we're going to be talking about the constitutional crisis facing our government and our society today. And I have an expert who is not only an expert in law and government, but she is also a personal friend. She has a a resume that is outstanding in this area. She's a retired constitutional law professor from the James Beasley School of Law at Temple University. Uh, She not only has been teaching law students for years about the Constitution, but she's also had practical applications of the law. She was involved with the Department of Justice. As a matter of fact, she was on the staff of the Nixon impeachment, which I'd love to hear about. And she was on Capitol Hill and ACLU, to name a few of her outstanding uh, jobs that she's held. And I think she began as an undergraduate uh, after college with uh, Delegate Walter Fontroy, and that's where we met. I was chief of staff, and she was a senior administrative uh, person on the staff, and we met in Walter's office in 1971, I think. So I'm talking about a good friend, a constitutional law expert, Professor Muriel Morrissey. Muriel, welcome to our show. Thank you, Dale. I'm really glad we've reconnected, and this conversation is about something very important to me. Well, thank you. I want you to explain to our listeners exactly, <clears throat> excuse me, why this is important to you. Because uh, I know that you have taught law and constitutional law for the past 25 years, and you've been involved with how government works. But I think it's near and dear to your heart. And I'd like you to just start, tell us a little bit about the background and about why this constitutional crisis and this standoff is important, not only to you, but to our society. Well, the the reason I became a lawyer, actually, is that I was working on Capitol Hill in Congressman Walter Fontroy's office, and I was absolutely fascinated by every aspect of the legislative process. Um, I decided that's what I wanted to do. That was my career path. I also noticed that all the people with the top positions on Capitol Hill had law degrees. And so I literally decided to go to law school so that I could have a richer uh, and more uh, responsible relationship to the legislative process by having the training of a lawyer. And the entire time I was in law school, I worked on Capitol Hill. What that meant was that my whole exposure to the law came in the context of watching and working closely with legislators, with members of Congress and their staff. And it was uh, during that time that I got the opportunity to work on the Nixon impeachment investigation. And so I worked closely then with some of the finest lawyers anywhere as they struggled with uh, how to handle the extensive evidence that the president of the United States was not, in fact, fulfilling his constitutional duty to make sure that the laws are faithfully executed. So by the time that experience ended, uh, uh, it ended, of course, when President Nixon resigned and we wound up the impeachment operation, I was more convinced than ever that 
the law was fascinating to me, and the legislative branch of our government was, to me, the most fascinating, but also the part of the law that got the least attention Right. Uh, when you're going through law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, law school gives you the idea that, as you know, that the important things that happen in the law can be read in some uh, case opinions, some judicial opinions about various things. And what I realized was that so much that's important uh, is what happens in Congress and the um, authority of Congress to decide uh, most of what happens in the law at the federal level is things Congress decides. And the reason I think that's so critically important right now is that we have a situation where the authority of Congress and the powers of Congress have been diminished by a series of events um, that actually the framers of the Constitution didn't foresee. Right. They created this great um, three three parts government, three co-equal branches of government, and they thought that the check on the executive was going to be the Congress. And as it turns out, right now, Congress is not carrying out the full role of the check on the executive that the framers intended. So we have this terrible imbalance where things that are happening uh, uh, in the executive branch and particularly the actions of the executive, the president of the United States, are not uh, offset by Congress to the degree that the framers expected. I'm going to ask you to, to explain a little bit more about that, to give our listeners a little bit of the the background. I want to go back first to your being on the impeachment staff because mm-hmm. I, I I want our listeners to have a sense that you know those of us who have done things have gone to law school and have had many jobs, but it, it just didn't happen that you had relationships that placed you in that position uh, on that impeachment staff, which I think was a very pivotal time for you and for mm-hmm. the country. And then you also found your calling. Uh, because it was something that interested you and you found it was uh, something that was quite important uh, in life, and that is the whole legislative process. So I want to talk a little bit about how you got there and then mm-hmm. how you went forward to fulfill that dream. Mm-hmm. Well, um, as it happens, my involvement in politics uh, began with literally stuffing the envelopes at a campaign headquarters for a guy who was running for Congress. Mm-hmm. His name was Perrin Mitchell. I remember he him. He was a professor at Morgan State uh, at University in Baltimore, and he wanted to run for Congress. He was running for Congress, and um, I was a close friend of somebody who was from Baltimore, wanted to see Perrin Mitchell win, and I literally went to his campaign headquarters and started my first involvement in politics just helping out as a volunteer. Congre- uh, Perrin Mitchell got elected to Congress, and um, it was just through one of a, sort of one of those flukes where somebody sort of says, hey, Muriel, I hear there's an opening on Capitol Hill, Um, and I got approached by someone, not yet on the Hill, but someone on the staff of the 
um, congressional campaign of Walter Fauntroy, right. who was running, who he had the Democratic nomination to be the D.C. delegate to Congress, which meant he was going to get elected, D.C. Right. <laughs> uh, political demographics being what they are. And I became a member of his campaign staff, and when he got elected, uh, he invited me to join his congressional staff, and that's where I started out, uh, literally helping him, uh, along with the other um, original staff members, helping him set up the office. Right. But quickly, it became we became part of a, a kind of community. There were not very many uh, black members of Congress then, and and then others. Uh, who welcomed him, other legislators would come by and, and welcome him as the first uh, elected delegate to Congress for the District of Columbia. And it it just became clear to me that that's where I wanted to be, to work, to work in that environment where the legislative decisions were being made, where the politics were being explored. And it was not long after that, it was Let's see. He was elected. I guess he took office in '72, and in early '74, a friend of mine who worked for Congressman uh, Charles Rangel um, approached me about whether I'd be interested in working on the Nixon impeachment investigation. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Absolutely. What could be more unique than that opportunity?" And um, so uh, I was hired by John Doerr, the chief counsel of the Nixon impe- impeachment investigation staff, and um, I got uh, caught up in one of the most uh, significant events of the 20th century for this for this country and this government. And we're going to be um, talking about that on this show as we go along, because the parallels between that Nixon uh, impeachment and the Watergate hearings, I think, are really kind of... Uh, prescient for the situation we're in today. So we're going to get back to that. But anyway, go on your path. So these relationships are so important. Hello? Hello, you still there? Yeah, I lost you for a second, I think. Oh, I was talking about how important these relationships were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe, and it's one of the things I always taught my law students in the 25 years I was a law professor and students would come to me often because of my special background as a legislative specialist, as somebody who didn't want to go into a law firm. And I would often, I would always counsel them to build the relationships and the connections that you make over the course of your career because uh, your reputation is largely a function of the quality of your work but also how people you meet in in your work environment perceive you and understand um, uh, what you bring to the work in terms of skills and also values. And so uh, the the experience on the Nixon impeachment investigation created for me another kind of network of incredible people, Mm -hmm. uh, the lawyers, on the impeachment staff, and also a lot of us who were the lowly research assistants actually right. ended up being lawyers right. um, because um, we we saw we saw how important uh, good lawyering was. And once that uh, experience was was winding up, um, again, largely through the conversations and the 
building of relationships, I was told that there was an opening in Shirley Chisholm's office and I might be interested in applying for that. And I knew the person who was leaving, a terrific black woman named Patsy Fleming. She had decided to resign from the Chisholm staff. And I applied for that. And what helped me a lot was that Patsy Fleming, the person who was leaving the position, also knew me, knew my work, and was able to say to Mrs. Chisholm, Muriel is somebody uh, I know and uh, I think would be a good fit for the office. So um, that just kind of happened. I wasn't uh, aware until somebody told me over some informal gathering, somebody said, by the way, Muriel, Patsy's <laughs> leaving Mrs. Chisholm's office. And so this building of connections, this um, this uh, developing a reputation for competence, high skill, not just competence, right. but also dealing effectively with people, I think was critical to every professional opportunity I had. And... Um, and th- that just once once you've worked for Shirley Chisholm <laughs> as a senior aide, ev- everybody knows at that point that you're skillful. You're used to working with a demanding person because she was a joy to work with, but she had extremely high standards for her staff. Right. And so, in a way, I was um, I was launched and. So when I finished law school, because all this time I'm going to law school at night, when I finished law school, I was offered two opportunities. One was to uh, be a, a Carter appointee to the Justice Department Office of Legislative Affairs, and the other was to be an attorney for the National Women's Law Center, which mm-hmm. was and is one of the premier women's rights organizations. And so I just had this, these great choices in front of me. Um, I chose the Justice Department because one of my friends who'd been one of the senior attorneys on the Nixon impeachment investigation, who I, I consulted, Evan uh, Davis had headed the Watergate section mm-hmm. of the uh, impeachment investigation. And Evan said, go to the Justice Department because the opportunity to be there for a new lawyer, for somebody coming out of law school, is unparalleled. And he said, once you've established yourself at the Justice Department, you don't even have to stay in the part of the Justice right. Department that you started out in. You you will be there and people will know you and you'll see other other opportunities. But as it happened, I was in the part of the Justice Department that was dealing with Congress. Right. So that was perfect because... Um, I was able to contribute to the discussions within the Justice Department about what was going on in Capitol Hill from the experience base of having worked on Capitol Hill, uh, knowing how Congress operates. And the people in the Justice Department, by and large, didn't have any legislative experience. Right, right. And you brought that to the table. Let me tell our listeners, we're talking to Muriel Morrissey, retired law professor from the James Beasley School of Law at Temple University. And uh, she said some exciting things and interesting things I think our listeners, I'm sure, have picked up on. Number one, those relationships she talked about launched her into the legislative government world uh, of Capitol Hill from Walter Fonchar's office, where we met. And I had similar experiences that Muriel is talking about. 
and she went to Shirley Chisholm's office. And those are the days when the Congressional Black Caucus was just beginning, uh, and many African Americans were just getting a sense of our government. And you were also going to law school full-time at night. So she had a vision, and she persevered, and she moved her vision forward uh, to reality, which would bring us to, uh, you had several other steps along the way, but I want to get to the whole idea of the constitutional crisis we're facing. I wanted Mm -hmm. our listeners to hear your solid background because I think that was so important for our discussion. And as you were talking about this standoff between the executive and legislative, you were saying that Congress wasn't seemingly stepping up. And I think Mm -hmm. our listeners were probably want to get, and I want to hear from you, uh, there are some political challenges that that many congresspersons are facing, as well Mm -hmm. as some of the constitutional ones that you are so familiar with. So that's the balance that we are sort of seeing at the moment. So give us a sense of what this standoff means to you and uh, what what might be a resolution. Well, I think the the resolution when you, we have a, a system that's designed to have this balance, three branches of government, when you have the imbalance and it's a serious enough imbalance that Congress is... Um, having trouble carrying out its constitutionally, uh, the things that was designed by the framers of the Constitution to do, to do oversight, to uh, make decisions about uh, that that are a check on, on actions by the executive branch. If you don't have the balance, how do you, uh, how do you replace the balance? Well, how do you put balance back into a system that's unbalanced? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the answer has to be increased engagement by people who are interested in these issues in knowing and understanding Congress's function, in in realizing why the things that these the that the legislators face in the House and the Senate, the decisions they have to make are so important and not get caught up in the idea, um, especially the idea that, that lawyers tend to, to develop, which is that the centerpiece of the law is the courts, and the centerpiece of running government is the executive branch. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's Congress that decides whether an agency exists. I mean, we didn't start out with an environmental protection agency. Congress created that. Mm-hmm. How much money they'll those agencies will get, and um, and what their authorities will be. So, I think the challenge for uh, the people in Congress is uh, how do they exercise that constitutional authority in an environment where uh, there's a powerful push from the executive uh, that would diminish or has the effect lately of diminishing Congress's ability to carry out its oversight function. So a good thing that's happened is that there are lots of new people uh, in Congress. I mean, people who've been elected in the last um, uh, two or uh, four to six years, basically, who really are serious about carrying out this legislative responsibility carrying out the congressional function as as part of the checks and balances but they have to be i think appreciated supported and not treated as sort of the third class citizens of the government after 
the president and the courts and the Congress, the Article One of the U.S. Constitution is what creates Congress. Mm-hmm. The other two branches were, are stated as uh, Articles 2 and 3, but the first article of our Constitution is Congress. And I think we have to uh, work harder than ever to uh, support, to understand, to appreciate the functions of Congress, because it is the only way under the constitutional system that we can really be sure that the executive branch is not overstepping its authority. And, of course, that's what President Nixon got in so much trouble about because there were three articles of impeachment, and um, they all had to do, basically, with the president abusing his authority, uh, uh, refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas, um, and uh, participating in a criminal cover-up, basically, a cover-up of well, crimes. this really sounds familiar because you, you just mentioned Nixon, but some of these same allegations are being levied against uh, President Trump, too. But let, mm-hmm. me, let me back up before we get to that point. When I asked you that question about resolution, it sounded as if you were saying one way that can be resolved is if the electorate understood more about the system and more about the checks and balances and became mm-hmm. more involved in the issue. Did I hear you right? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, one of the, uh, we, since I started my work uh, with in Congress, really with the law, working with, with members of Congress, I was very aware that um, they were doing important work and an awful lot of people didn't understand what they were, what they were doing. There, I'm sure there are people, I'm sure most of my neighbors, um, uh, where I live right now, which is a suburb of D.C., most of them probably don't know who represents them in Congress. Mm-hmm. I bet mm-hmm. if I did a, you know, if I went door to door in my block, I would find people who couldn't answer the question. And what that means is they're not monitoring what he's up to. Is he doing a good job? Is he representing their interests? And if they don't hold him to account, who will? Right. Because uh, he has to face re-election every two years like everybody in Congress. And if he's not uh, being held to account by the people he represents, then uh, that's, that's a problem because he's supposed to have to respond to his constituency. And I think more people need to know that and need to literally go to the, go to the representative's office. Right. You know, every representative has a Washington office, of course, but they also have a local office. And, and I tell people, go to where your representative has the office at home. Yeah, what you're, there is one. What you're talking about is sort of the grassroots efforts of being involved in the political system and also voting and being very active and keeping up with the issues. And when you mention representative, you're talking about the federal representative, the, the U.S. representative from the, the, your particular district, and you also know that a senator is elected every six years, so you've got Senate mm-hmm. representation. But let me push yeah. let me push back to you a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I agree with you, but the short attention span, the lack of understanding of our government, all of the competing news sources, people are just not really clear about their power, their issues, or even care about it. And mm-hmm. I... I wonder if that's going to be the strategy that we should rely on. Not that we shouldn't do what you're saying, 
But is that going to be the strategy that turns the day? Or is it going to be a strategy of dealing with uh, public relations and the press and information um, as the president is so deftly at doing? Uh, is that where the battle is going to be won uh, vis-a-vis Congress taking action or not taking action? Anyway, just throw that out to you. Well, I mean, I'm one great believer in the idea that you avoid false choices. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's it's not either or, it's both and, that there needs to be uh, close attention by people who are interested in how their lives are going and what happens to them to know what the elected officials, my expertise happens to be about the federal government, but of course it's true at the state and local levels, to know what their elected representatives are doing and also be very keen observers and consumers of the news media. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I talk to, when I talk sometimes just in social environments, I'll talk about something that seems to be repeated over and over in the media about some constitutional principle. And I will say a lot of the journalists actually don't know the constitutional principle they're talking about. Right. Unfortunately. Well enough Mm -hmm. to report on it effectively. And if some journalist is reporting it in a way that not with malintent, just, lack of information, you're not going to know if you're getting the the, the right information about a government. Mm -hmm. If you can't tell, you know, when somebody says something about the Constitution that's not true, right? how do you deal with that? Aren't you a victim of that, really? You certainly are. Let me me take you through a a step or two here uh, about this constitutional crisis uh, that's facing us. Uh, The Department of Justice um, set up um, uh, through a special counsel uh, appointed by the deputy attorney general at that time, Rosenstein. uh, And that special counsel is uh, Robert Mueller. And he put a team together, as you well know, to investigate Russia interference into our elections in 2016. And uh, no leaks came from that. And uh, uh, the executive was pushing hard, saying this was all a witch hunt and a waste of money. And finally, the report was issued and uh, the... Uh, the first Attorney General Sessions was let go, and a new Attorney General, uh, uh, Bill Barr, was uh, uh, nominated and confirmed, and he now takes on the job of uh, receiving the Mueller report and issues a summary and uh, uh, before it's released in its redacted form. Um, and now uh, we've got a standoff here because we can't get um, information behind the evidence of this Mueller report. Uh, Mueller came out and made a statement, uh, but uh, said in so many words, the DOJ opinion means that he couldn't uh, indict a sitting president, uh, but yet um, he felt that there were actions uh, that needed to be looked at, and he investigated 10 or 12 of those actions that um, may not show a conspiracy, but may show uh, con- uh, an obstruction of justice. And But mm-hmm. he felt he felt his hands were tied, and uh, mm-hmm. the, it seems like the next step is up to Congress. So my point is now the, 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 the White House is refusing to let anything go or to let anybody mm-hmm. testify. And so there's no information coming, but there have been subpoenas issued. So we've got this back and forth. And so what do we do about this? Well, I, I think it goes right back to what uh, I 
spoke to at the beginning, which is congressional authority. Mm-hmm. If someone in if the executive branch, any and all executive branch officials at this point, are resisting what Congress is demanding, I go back to the fact that Congress decides, for example, how much funding those agencies get. Mm-hmm. There have been times when uh, c- congressional committees with oversight were uh, upset about something that an agency was doing, and they would call the head of the agency in, in the context of the appropriations process, mm-hmm. to say, you want X million dollars for this program, but we have concerns about how it's being run. I don't think, I mean, the, the appropriations cycle isn't, the next appropriations bill isn't coming up for these agencies um, soon enough to deal with these uh, subpoena, is resist, this resistant to subpoenas. But the idea, the reinforcing to the public and to these officials that we, meaning Congress, control your budget, we control the continued existence of your agency, you have to listen to us because... A time will come when you need us to appropriate the funds, and it is us that decides whether we'll do that. Yeah, let me stick with that one for a moment, because that's an exciting and interesting issue, the appropriations uh, power uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, For example, uh, the president has decided, uh, since he did not get uh, money for a wall to be built uh, on our southern border, uh, he's decided that uh, there's a national emergency in his mind and that he was going to take some money from other sources uh, like the military and put it into his wall fund to build the wall. And that mm-hmm. effort has been taken to court. And there's one judge who has ruled, one federal judge, who's ruled that uh, maybe he has the right to do this. And I think this judge is going to lose uh, if they appeal it, and I think they will, he will probably be reversed because of just what you said. Uh, The appropriation power rests with Congress. And Mm -hmm. if they didn't appropriate the money for the wall, he has no authority. The executive has no authority to rearrange that money. So that's an issue. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that they, there'd be no money for, for, for any program if Congress didn't appropriate it, but also the authorization are very specific. Right. You know, they authorize the program and they appropriate the money for specific purposes. Right. And so if Congress intended this money to be spent for one purpose, it is not up to the president, for example, to decide, well, I'll spend it on something else. Right. He cannot do that. He's gotten one favorable decision in lower court, but I think that's going to be reversed. So we've mm-hmm. got... we got- The president is exacting uh, uh, executive privilege and saying, I'm not going to let anyone testify. I'm not going to send any information because this information is privileged. And he's, he's saying no to everything. What are we, what, what has, what, what's going to be done here? Well, I think that's another example where education, the public needs to understand and journalists need to understand what is or is not 
the law on this, executive privilege is really very narrow. Mm -hmm. It's designed solely so that the president can have confidential advice from trusted um, members of the staff, the president's staff, and not be worried that these conversations are open season. It doesn't mean that the president is free to completely control congressional access to information. So the way the current president is using executive privilege is just an overblown distortion of the whole concept. <laughs> right. And it's, it's, um, it's terribly misleading the way it gets talked about because it sounds as though, yes, there is this thing called executive privilege and the president can hold on to the documents. Mm -hmm. No, this thing called executive privilege means that the, the, the press, the, the major lawsuits, uh, some of them centered around demands by the press to get access to information, that everybody is not entitled to know what the president and the president's closest advisors said in their deliberations in the White House, but unless it's specifically, uh, treat, uh, it's only privileged if it's a very, very special, narrow kind of communication between the president and close advisors. And the rest of this is just, um, it's just a huge distortion of the basic constitutional principle of executive privilege. Yes, and, and I agree with you. And also you might have to add to that, that, that he, for whatever reason, the president allowed uh, many of his staff persons, including his White House counsel, Don McGahn, McGahn to, uh, to, to, to uh, cooperate with the Mueller uh, investigation and he did not uh, exert ex executive privilege. But now, mm -hmm. after the fact, he's now exerting it and saying that Don McGahn cannot go up on the Hill uh, to testify uh, as a result. So he's exercising it post facto. And so, well, and also, D Don McGahn is a private citizen now. Right. And it, it just doesn't make any sense that the president can say, Don McGahn, don't talk to Congress about the things you testified about under oath right. to the special counsel because it will be embarrassing to me if you, you know, you're all over the media talking about the stuff that's already in the report. But he I didn't, mean, that's what the, <laughs> but he didn't, but he didn't, uh, he didn't comply. He didn't show up. Uh, Don McGahn has not come. He, he, re, he respected uh, the president's wishes, even though he's now a private citizen. Am I right? Well, yes, but mm -hmm. that's, I mean, that's a choice he's making, and exactly. it has to do with the political dynamics and whatever his notions are about where he wants his his career to go from this point, what kind of reputation he wants within powerful people in the Republican Party. None of that changes the fact that the president has no legal authority to tell him he can't testify before Congress right. on something he's already testified about to the so special counsel. So what, what I'm leading up to is a, a big question to you, into Muriel law professor from the James Beasley School of Law at Temple University, and we're talking about the constitutional crisis, the standoff between the executive and the legislative government, and the aftermath of the Mueller report, the stonewalling of our president on information, uh, the resisting of subpoenas. Uh, so what I'm leading to with this backdrop uh, you've clearly laid out uh, the balances of power uh, between the various branches. But let's, I'm going to put a question to you. You're now representative. You're now a congressperson from 
your district in Maryland, and you're now faced with this situation as a sitting congressperson. Um, what would you do, given this environment, um, that you're now representing your district, um, there is a standoff between uh, the legislative and the executive branch, they're not complying with any subpoenas, there's been some contempt of, of Congress uh, citations, and they're ignoring those. What what would you do? What does what, what what is the remedy? What I'm leading up to, as you well know, is impeachment. Mm-hmm. What would you do? Well, I'm gonna t- twist a little bit where you're going, and for okay. this reason, I happen to live in a very safe Democratic congressional district, mm-hmm. and if I were holding the seat. I would have the security of knowing that uh, I'm probably going to, I have massive support from the people who elected me. Right. Because, you know, that Maryland is like that by and large. Mm-hmm. The tougher question is somebody who, who got into Congress having flipped a Republican seat, and now there's a Democrat in that seat, and that Democrat is faced with what do I do given the fact that my district is, you know, a purple district, you might say, under the cliche. I think the challenge there, or if I were in, in, from a district like that, I would probably be out among my constituents meeting with people, literally meeting with people and helping them understand and do everything I could to publicize the reality of how this system works and why it is a constitutional crisis when the mm-hmm. president is defying Congress's lawful exercise of its constitutional responsibilities. Because I think I'd be trying to figure out how to educate enough people in my congressional district that if the day comes when I'm having to vote in favor of an article of impeachment, my people who elected me understand why this was part of my duty. This is not some partisan thing. Uh, that I came up with because I happen to be a Democrat. And there are a number of members of Congress who are in that precise situation. Well, they have to figure out how to do, carry out their constitutional duties and have people understand it's not a partisan witch hunt thing. It's the constitutional obligation of someone elected to Congress to be a check on the executive. Well, that's a very, very good answer, and I applaud you for the answer because— your answer came out to be one of fulfilling your obli- obligation to represent the people by going out and talking to them about your point of view and educating them, and that's a very good approach. And the other one was a nonpartisan, we've got to respect the Constitution as it was founded, and mm-hmm. we then have to be beyond party, decide what's right for the country. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you explain there's only one Republican who've come out against uh uh, who's asked for impeachment of the president? Only one Republican. How do you well, how do you answer that? I think that some of it is the the contemporary um, rigidity and partisan nature of the Republican Party. There aren't there aren't uh, a whole lot of Republicans who are moderates the, the way there were in the seventies. Um, mm-hmm. There, he's really almost literally alone, because there's so few Republicans who are not beholden for their seats to 
a very strict and partisan view of of the politic of the policy issues. So he's obviously prepared to lose his seat, mm-hmm. or he mm-hmm. wouldn't be doing this. It's true. Um, true. I think he's already lost who, money. He's already lost yeah, money in support. Sure. You're absolutely right. I think I think a lot mm-hmm. of them are afraid that they will lose their political support and they want to keep their jobs, which is understandable at a human level. But since they've sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, uh, it seems to me, well, again, if I were in the district of some of these folks, I would be making absolutely sure. And I mean, if I had a, a conservative Republican representative in Congress, I would be pushing hard on that person to say, you swore to an oath to the Constitution, and you have to fulfill that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, let me let me ask another question before we close out. You've been very generous with your time, and it's a, I, I found this very fascinating. Back to your Nixon impeachment days, I was asked this question. It was by my spouse, uh, Gail Lewis, as a matter of fact. She asked this question, and I don't have the answer, and I need to research it. I'm going to ask it of you. You may know it off the top of the head. How uh, On the Nixon impeachment, I do know there were several Republicans on the Watergate committee who asked tough questions and who began to pressure the president to answer these questions. Howard Baker, what did the president know and when did he know it? But the question was asked by my spouse, how many Republicans stayed with the president and for how long? And when did, when did the Republicans break with Nixon? And I don't know that answer. I don't know it in terms of numbers. Um, I, I'd have to look it up, too, in terms of the numbers. But I know that um, for the three articles of impeachment, there were uh, the three articles of impeachment that were passed by the House Judiciary Committee. Um, there, there were, I think, at least seven Republicans for each of those articles of impeachment. I think it was a 28-person um, committee. I'd have to look up the numbers again. Mm-hmm. But the point is... Though the Democrats were, uh, were controlled, in other words, there were enough Democratic votes to vote articles of impeachment, but there was a significant number of Republicans who supported each of the three that were adopted. None of them were adopted mm-hmm. with only one or two Republican um, members. Um, of course, by then, they had the benefit of weeks and weeks of research and presentations by the impeachment staff. Right. So they weren't sitting around wondering, well, am I going to see the document or am I going to hear from the that's special right. counsel? Mm-hmm. They had it all in writing before them. Well, that's a very, very good point. You you mentioned two points. Before we close out, we're talking to Muriel, Muriel Morrissey, a retired professor of law at Temple University. Uh, I've been fascinated by this. Uh, one of the things that um, uh, that I wanted to end with uh, when you mention um, uh, that where we are in today's environment, you mention a very interesting point that we are very, very politicized uh, and we're we're gone uh, to one side or the other. there There is very little middle ground. and mm-hmm. that's very different from the seventies and the eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when you're when you're saying um, the articles, if the articles were drafted, we could almost say that there would be, not be any Republican votes in today's House. And mm-hmm. if it got over, and it would be passed, those articles, because the Democrats have the majority. And mm-hmm. it would go to the Senate, and given the, the majority of uh, the 
of the Republicans in the Senate, uh, he would not be convicted. So from a mm -hmm. so from a political point of view, given this uh, terrain, um, that's why you find I think some people, particularly Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, not wanting to move in that direction. Uh, would you Would you agree with that? Well, I it, I think there's no question that that he would never be convicted in the in the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure that's the answer to the question whether or that's a reason for for the House not to go forward with an impeachment investigation because the because too many people actually don't know enough about what's going on and maybe that would there would be more attention and more awareness if an impeachment investigation were instituted. I'm not convinced that all of that education and awareness couldn't be achieved without an impeachment investigation in the sense that the information is out there. There's really not a whole lot of information that's not known and knowable. It's just that it's not formally uh, a lot of it before Congress. So I'm thinking if Robert Mueller didn't do anything but go before the Congressional Committee in live testimony and at every prompt repeated and cited some page in the report of what they found, that would achieve a great deal, even if none of the Republicans succeeded in baiting him to saying inappropriate things. Right. Um, you know, there'd be Republicans trying to trip him up and get get him to say regrettable things. I think he could resist it. And meantime, more people would be aware of what's actually out there on the record right now about what the president has done and you, failed to do. You're absolutely correct, Miro. This has been great. This is exactly where I was going to end up. Because when you started about education, you started about a congressperson in, uh, educating his or her community and getting out there, letting people know about the branches of government and the checks and balances. All of that is takes time and, and effort. Uh, I think what you hit on is, is, is where I think is part of the solution, and that is information coming through the committees in their investigatory authority from the Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committee, uh, the Finance Committee, doing what they're doing, but have it before the public with the Mueller report being uh, a basis as well as other material that they get. So that just like everyone was riveted to those Watergate hearings, you remember? Everyone, mm -hmm. uh, we, everyone watched it religiously. And I think yeah. uh, given this age of technology and short attention span and all of these news sources, we need to have that information uh, from those committees' uh, live testimony. And I think you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. That's going to at least, I think, get things more uh, moving in one direction, and I think it'll be in a direction uh, toward um, understanding the evidence. And mm -hmm. I, you don't have to make a decision whether X or Y, but at least people will have the evidence in front of them. Yeah. So, yeah. listen, this has been fantastic. Do you have any final uh, words you'd like to impart? You've had a tremendous uh, uh, career uh, going through the Capitol Hill, the legislative process, becoming a lawyer, fulfilling your dream of teaching uh, and teaching young lawyers about, and lawyers generally, uh, lawyers-to-be about how our system works. Any, uh, any words of wisdom you'd like to impart to our listeners about your journey? 
I suppose I repeat what I repeated for 25 years of law <laughs> teaching, which is the, the decision to be involved in the career of law does not have to mean working for a law firm and representing corporate interests. Mm -hmm. The work that lawyers do in the government, in the executive branch for that matter, but also in Congress and in the uh, state and local government uh, offices is so interesting and so important that I hope anyone thinking about becoming a lawyer or maybe doing a professional transition or a mid-career transition as a lawyer will consider working with the government in one of the branches of government at, at one of the levels because the the contribution that can be made uh, is is immeasurable and you're probably not going to find out about it until you pursue it. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we have been talking uh, with Muriel Morrissey retired professor of law at the James Beasley School of Law at Temple University, a person uh, who is a role model for not only African-American women, but for women and men in this country and around the world, who had a vision, took her vision uh, and made it into a reality and became a lawyer and worked in the system to teach others about our system. Mural has been outstanding. Uh, I, I'm glad we reconnected from our Fontra days. I'm proud of the things that you've achieved. And I want you to continue to enjoy life. And thanks for participating in our podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dale. Okay, thank you. Bye now. Bye. You have been listening to Left, Right, Forward, Business and Political Solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. We had this wonderful conversation about the constitutional crisis facing our society today. A standoff between the executive branch, which includes the president of the United States and those agencies that report to him, and the legislative branch, and obviously its impact on the court system. It's a standoff today. We're not getting any legislation enacted. We're not getting things moving in this country. The economy is having its ups and downs, mainly because this is hanging, the standoff is hanging over us. I think you heard some possible solutions. I think you heard some insights about how government works. And I want you to continue to listen to us as we probe these issues of the day, relevant issues of the day. And we have one before us, the constitutional crisis, the standoff between our executive and legislative branch. We must make a change and make a difference. Thank you for listening. Until next time, Godspeed.